Why do we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. The Universe Next Door is supported by the C.S. Lewis Society, Trinity College of Florida, and supported by gifts from listeners just like you. Discover more resources and continue the conversation at apologetics.org. And now, your host, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of Florida, author and speaker, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to the Universe Next Door. As I get uh, so excited, I get jazz <laughs> whenever I hear our handle music. Oh, I'm sorry. I just get just turned on. Yeah. Uh, Handel was quite a composer. I mean, that particular, uh, you know, excerpt from the, it's a Deutsche Grammophon CD. And if you're ever interested in, you know, finding out a little bit more about the music that we use in this program, uh, we actually can send you a grade sheet where I actually took the 19 tracks in this CD and gave them all grades. I think, have I shown that to you, Nick? Yeah, you gave it to me. Okay, yeah. And so I think most of them have A plus or A plus plus. Three, three of the of the tracks, including this one that we play a little bit of, have seven pluses. Wow! Have, have that <laughs> after a, the A. I'm sorry, I couldn't help myself. That's a top score. Yeah, it is a top score. Seven pluses after the A. So A plus 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 plus. So yeah, well done, uh, Handel. I can't wait to meet him in glory. So anyway, so what we're gonna do is today we're gonna dive in to the universe next door. Wait a minute, that's the name of our program. Yes, we're gonna dive into the actual name. Because the name of our program is really relating to a series of universes, mental universes. And, of course, it relates to the physical universe as well, because that's part of the big picture of a worldview. A conception of reality that dominates the way we think and the way we evaluate, the way we adjudicate, that is, kind of say yes, thumbs up, or no, thumbs down to a theory, to an idea, to anything that we're looking at in the world of uh, not only science, but value, morality, uh, policy. Boy, you know, that's what Congress, and not just Congress, but even we in our own gatherings as a family. I mean, when, when I made rules up, my wife and I made rules for our kids, we involved them in making these judgment calls, these policies, these rules. And we involved the kids. Of course, you know, mom and dad had the ultimate say-so, but they were able to express their, their point of view. And so within the Christian worldview, what we know about God, what we know about his word, what we know about morality, we then construct policies uh, that affected us. So anything that we do is in the framework of the big picture. Your view of God, prime reality, even the atheist has his own God substitute. So it might be science, you know, so he doesn't look to the Word of God, the Bible, he looks to science, you know, the latest pronouncements from some physicist or astronomer or whatever, some biologist. He may look to the stuff, you know, nature or particles or the forces of physics, whatever. He has some God out, up at the top of his pyramid. The, the ultimate prime reality. And then flowing down, down from that is the view of the universe, the view of man, what do we view the afterlife uh, to be, whether it's reincarnation, whether it's a, a single you know, afterlife that we're destined. 
Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? Is there a judgment? Is there no judgment? Is there existence at all? And then, of course, things like, how do you know what you know? That has a technical name in philosophy called epistemology. But then you have other areas, such as a view of history. What's the big sense of uh, where we're headed and where we came from? and other matters as well. All of these things and much more are covered so well in a book that has the same name as our program. Yes, The Universe Next Door. I'm holding in my hand the third edition. I think the, los, the most recent one from InterVarsity Press is the fifth edition and is authored by the late and great James Sire, S-I-R-E. Oh, a couple hundred thousand copies, maybe they're up to 300,000 by now, have been printed not only in English, but I think it's in maybe about a dozen other languages. The Universe Next Door, probably the most powerful and important book on world religions and worldviews that has ever been produced in the history of mankind. Great, great book by a great, great teacher, a great Christian teacher. And we're so indebted. This Universe Next Door program, literally, I called up Jim Sire, asked him if we could use the name of his book, and he said, what? You're going to use the name of my book for your program? <laughs> you can imagine, Nick, his, his reaction. He was very humbled. He says, well, I actually got it from E.E. E. Cummings from a poem, the great Harvard poet. You know. Wow. So, but anyway, InterVarsity Press, they said, what? You want to use the name of our book? I said, we're going to promote your book. They said, oh, how can we help? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they were very interested. So All over that. Yeah, so the InterVarsity Press people love us. Thank you very much, InterVarsity Press, for printing this book and keeping it in print. So my, uh, my urging to you is do not walk, run to your lo local uh, source, your computer or laptop or whatever, you know, iPhone you use to order on Amazon or, or Christian books or whatever, and order yourself a copy of the latest edition of The Universe Next Door. Today, we're turning to what Jim Sire covers and in one of the early chapters called The Clockwork Universe. So clockwork implies that there is a comparison between the universe and a clock. Now that's interesting because Paley himself, the great um, British philosopher of science, compared all of nature and indeed very beautifully crafted animals and plants that we find. If we're walking through nature, we find, let's say, um, a rock, we see it on the ground, we pick it up, it's just kind of an irregular shaped rock. We look at it, mm, that's interesting, we toss it to one side. And then we go another few feet and we pick up an actual pocket watch. Okay, so it's a tiny version of a clock. And he sees that the pocket watch has one of those little flip covers. And as you look into the interior, it has a glass pane covering the two hands, the hour and minute hand. And you can actually see inside the gears, several of them, you know, like a dozen that are intermeshed. You can see that everything is crafted to completely work together in great detail, in great harmony. It was obviously planned by a beautifully functioning, intelligent craftsman whose mind is be beyond belief, whose mind is brilliant and clever at making such a thing uh, work together, not only to conceive it, but then to actually build it and to make it 
and then to uh, just to see it in, in, in function, well, you pick up this clock or this pocket watch off the ground and you know it has a maker. You don't know who, but you do know it was designed. Yeah, now this is still a relevant argument today. It is. And it's called the watchmaker argument. Yeah, and it's falsely mislabeled a lot of the times as uh, an argument from analogy. It's really an argument for best explanation. It is. Thank you very much. Uh, and that's and that's a good point. That is a really good point, because you can are you can compare other explana explanations in nature, in the in the natural setting, and you can just kind of put them up against each other. Uh, so then it would be uh, inference to the best explanation would make it. Uh, to get technical and abductive, would that make it an abductive argument? I believe so. Yeah, yeah. So I'll go ahead and just check off. Yeah, we have here an abductive <laughs> argument. Charles Sanders Peirce, okay? <laughs> 1890s Harvard professor. He was the one that I think that uh, with the uh, various others that came after him. Dewey, of course, was involved with that, but I'm not going to mention him anymore. <laughs> yeah, he turned into one of the bad guys in sec <laughs> secular humanism. But uh, but James, I think William James was in that tradition, uh, developing that kind of at least the good side of pragmatism was there at their founding. They had the, the excellent abductive uh, argument approach. You, half of you may have said, what is he talking about? But that's okay. I'm going to come back up from the world of philosophy to the world of deism. So that's what the clockwork universe is all about, deism. I know deism well. One of my brothers is uh, functionally, I think, uh, still is, a deist. And so what is, in essence, in a boiled down, most simple summary, what is a deist all about? In the basic, relevant terminology of today, someone who accepts that the universe was crafted by a god, but the god who made the universe just kind of tossed it out, let it function on its own, and concerned himself with other things, paid little or no attention to the universe after that, basically went off on a vacation, and is not really concerned that much with what's going on here. That person or that you know worldview that describes the universe that way would be rightly called a deist. Now, deism became more popular, of course, in the time of the Enlightenment. So, a quick review. The Enlightenment kicked in around the late 1600s and really kind of petered out in the late 1700s, early 1800s. The last wave of the Enlightenment actually included some of the great figures of U.S. history. Uh, Benjamin Franklin uh, was Im impacted by this and, and, and in effect became a deist. Uh, what several, at least one we know for sure, of our early presidents was clearly a deist, uh, and that would be Thomas Jefferson. The reason we know that is that on the one hand, his treatment of the Bible rejected the miraculous. I'm holding in my hand the Jefferson Bible subtitled, The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. Yes, this actually was the production of Thomas Jefferson. And if you read the end of this uh, very interesting uh, production, this very interesting shortened, edited, if you will, version of the life of Jesus, the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth, it ends with these last couple verses. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side 
and forthwith came there out blood and water. Okay, you recognize this, of course, from John 19. Mm -hmm. Okay. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. He came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about an hundred pound weight. And they took, and then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen cloths with the spices, as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulchre, wherein was never man yet laid. There laid they Jesus, and rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulchre, and departed. Period. End of chapter. End of book. Okay. The Jefferson Bible. That's the end of it. Anything missing there, Nick? Uh, anything miraculous, the resurrection, and <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Some other keynotes, but yeah, I would say the resurrection is entirely left out. Yes, of course. Now, yeah. and if you read this entire account, the Jefferson Bible has no, and I repeat, no miraculous action, no work of Jesus uh, that could be classified miraculous anywhere in it. It's just his life and some of his teachings. So you say, well, why? Why would he do that? Because a deist, although accepting <coughs> the bare existence of God as the one who created the universe, who put it together and structured it as the clockwork, kind of the, puts the parts of a clock together and just lets it kind of go ticking away, winds it up maybe at the beginning. Uh, so the, the deist takes the full-throated, complete bustling and very active and charged with electricity view of theism, Christian theism, and drains it of its ongoing miraculous oversight of the God who made it. So the God retreats from the scene and with him all power to act in the arena of the world, retreats from the scene, and we're sort of on our own. Now, uh, Voltaire you may be surprised, but he had basically a deist view. He was very anti-church. He was more anti-Roman Catholic than he was anti-Protestant, but he was just generally anti-Christian faith. But he wasn't anti-creation, and he actually wrote a couple screeds against the atheists, or you might call them proto-agnostics, who said, you know, we can't believe in creation. He mocked that. He said, oh, that's stupid. And so when people... Uh, try to champion when atheists today use Vol Voltaire in his writings as championing their viewpoint, I just like want to object. I'm like the lawyer I say, who wants to say to the judge, I object because there's no way that you can use Voltaire to bring down the hammer of Darwin because Voltaire, if he were still alive when Darwin came on the scene, would probably, you know, object at least initially. I mean, whether he would be convinced by Darwin is another matter. But his views do not jive with that. Yet, and yet, the views of Thomas Jefferson on the issue of creation are very clear. So clear that, uh, Nick, I think I'll read from a letter. I think that's a good idea. Okay. So let's read what Thomas Jefferson, this early deist, again, we're talking about deism today, this deist, 
who was the, I think it was the third president, if I remember. Yeah, he was the third president. Yeah, okay, 1803. Adams. Yeah, John Adams, of course. And this is, by the way, in the wonderful volume called The Adams-Jefferson Letters, edited by uh, Lester Cap Capon, Capon uh, published by Chapel Hill Press. A great, great uh, breakthrough uh, when this was published some years back. So this is actually here on page 592. This is a letter that was penned by Thomas Jefferson to the former president, retired at this point, to his good friend, Adams. Now, when they were in politics, they were not good friends. They were kind of quasi-enemies, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, they, they were. So. They were like uh, like cat and dog, but or at least two, two dogs from the uh, opposite side of the track. And they didn't like each other. At least they didn't get together that often. And let's say that their communication was minimal. But then they become really good friends and, and almost like uh, very, very close through uh, their correspondence after they left the presidency. So near the end of their lives, the correspondence from Jefferson to Adams on April 11th, 1823, veers into the topic of creation. And then he says... Referring to some of the, the doubters who do not believe in creation at all, okay? And uh, they, he, he refers to some of these, you know, Diderot and Holbach and the encyclopedists who who's kind of sweep all the evidences of intelligence in, in nature. They, they sweep it out the, the front door and just throw it in the garbage. And so uh, Thomas Jefferson makes a very, very interesting statement. He says, They say then that it is more simple to believe at once in the eternal pre-existence of the world as it is now going on and may forever go on by the principle of reproduction, which we see and witness, than to believe in the eternal pre-existence of an ulterior cause or creator of the world a being whom we see not and know not, of whose form, substance, uh, and mode or place of existence or actions, excuse me, or of action, no sense informs us. No power of the mind enables us to delimit or comprehend. Now, that's a long sentence, so let me just say, um, he's saying that some people want to just get rid of the idea of God entirely. And, and he says, basically, Thomas Jefferson is going to say, I object. I object. This is what he says. Are you ready for this, Nick? Yes, I'm ready. Okay. On the contrary, I hold without appeal to revelation. In other words, he's not bringing in the Bible. I hold that when we take a view of the universe in its parts general or particular, it is impossible for the human mind not to perceive and feel a conviction of design, of consummate skill, and indefinite power in every atom of its composition. The movements of the heavenly bodies, so exactly held in their course by the balance of centrifugal and centripetal forces, the structure of our earth itself, with its distribution of lands, waters, and atmosphere, animal and vegetable bodies, examined in all their minutest particles, insects, mere atoms of life, yet as perfectly organized as man or mammoth, 
the mineral substances, their generation and use, it is impossible, I say, for the human mind not to believe that there is in all this design, cause and effect, up to an ultimate cause, a fabricator of all things from matter in motion, their preserver and regulator while permitted to exist in their present forms and their regenerator into in other forms. Wow. So what he's saying, and I could, I could read more, but what he has been saying here is that it is very, very clear, abundantly clear to him that there is in the world an abundant um, evidence of design in nature. So this is one of the most outstanding examples of a, of a deist speaking out both on not believing in miracles, sadly, in my view, in the miracle of the resurrection specifically, but at the same time speaking clearly on, if you will, the initial miracle of creation and how you cannot fail to see creation. Uh, the deist then is one who accepts creation but says God checked out. You know, he left the hotel, he's on the road, he didn't leave a forwarding address, he didn't, didn't leave a cell number, we don't know how to contact him, sorry, that's it. So, uh, in, in essence, the deist leaves this whole area of the existence of God, kind of a, um, the, the existence, the bare existence is seen, but that is, that is about it. Human beings, okay, are part of the clockwork of the universe is one of the key points, but that's about all we are. You know, the future of our um, total existence past death is, well, uncertain. Uh, the afterlife, to put it mildly, is um, not really very clear. Uh, one of the things that they will bring out in deism is that ethics is based on general revelation. So you don't need the Bible. As a matter of fact, the Bible is just, well, kind of beside the point. And the, I, the deist, what I would say is, if he is in the position of believing in the Creator and believing at least in some kind of God, should be encouraged to investigate the claims of Christ. Because Christ, if he is open to looking at what is really found in the Bible, what is contained in the claims of Christ, that he accepted worship. And of course, any Jew should have instantly rejected any expression of worship. He claimed to be eternal before Abraham was, I am. He said over and over, I am the Messiah, when asked about it at the high trial, put under the highest oath, and made it very, very abundantly clear to uh, Pilate that his claim was valid. He claimed the authority to forgive sin. Think of that. No ordinary man would, would say, I can give forgive all the sins of your life, Nick. I would be arrogant or insane if I said such a thing. Christ said it on various occasions and on and on. He not only claimed to be the one who had stepped into, into time and space for our sin problem, bore our wrath that, that we deserve, and as God poured it out on him instead of us, but rose from the dead, 
And that's the ultimate proof. Paul says mm-hmm. he died for our sins, he was buried, he was raised again, and he was seen by eyewitnesses. And this is where the deist who treasures science, who treasures evidence, who respects clear thinking, should be able to enter the realm of considering the evidence for the resurrection of Christ with careful logic, with careful evaluation, clear thinking. And if you're in that condition, just con- contact us at information at apologetics.org. We'll see you back here next week on The Universe Next Door. You've been listening to The Universe Next Door with Dr. Tom Woodward, sponsored by the C.S. Lewis Society and Trinity College of Florida and supported through the gifts of listeners just like you. To gather resources, continue the conversation, and support The Universe Next Door with your financial gifts, go to apologetics.org. That's apologetics.org. And join us again next time as we continue to seek the truth about life, faith, and worldview in the universe next door.